Hey, welcome to the Parallax Podcast. I'm Liz Brown. As founding principal and CEO of Urban Development, James Johnson Pyatt promotes a systematic approach to development that emphasizes community resilience to solve local problems and elevate the quality of life for underserved neighborhoods in more equitable ways. I sat down with James to talk about his work and how it's changed over time, his deep Philly roots, and how COVID-19 has increased insecurity for many Philadelphians, but also presents new opportunities for innovation. Here's our conversation. You're from Philly, right? You, you, you were born and raised here. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Like what it, what it was like growing up in Philly? Because I'm not from here. I've been here for about almost 10 years now. I'm from upstate New York. And I hear all these wonderful stories about Philadelphia. And, and it's just it's changed so much already just since I've been here. What, what's it been like for you to look back and look forward? Well, it's interesting. I think I always wonder about people when they when they establish residency in a place. When can you be a Philadelphian? You know, I, I had to deal with that a little bit in New York. I never had an interest in being a New Yorker, so I wasn't impressed about it. But I spent 10 years in New York and I was always like, that's cool, but I'm a Philadelphian. But then I came back home and it's like, you got to reestablish your, your, your bona fides as a Philadelphian, even though I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I, I went, you know, I grew up in a crack ep- epidemic. I grew up in, in one of the hardest hoods ever. But I still got to come back and, and, and own, you know, the fact that I've been gone and what does that mean? So I think it, it's interesting how your who you are and where you are, you know, have to be constantly re, revalidated to some extent, especially here. But I've always appreciated that. I've always felt like it's important for you to keep showing and proving. So I grew up in Strawberry Mansion uh, in North Philly. I was born in 79. I grew up in the 80s and the early 90s. That's sort of where I cut my teeth. And so it was a tough time. You know what I mean? Um, I was talking in front, in front of a buddy of mine about move. And uh, remembering is one of my first sort of childhood memories of a mayor bombing a, a neighborhood in, in our city. And my aunt lived not too far away from the move site. So, you know, I had some real sort of clear memories of that. But Philly was interesting coming up because I, I think, you know, to some extent, if you go to Strawberry Mansion on the block I grew up on right now, it would feel very similar to how it felt in the, in the 80s. Like physically, it feels the same. Whereas if you go down 10, 12, 15 blocks to, to Brewery Town, um, shoot the Fairmount to a lot of these neighborhoods that have really had a lot of change, you know, even if the, if the core sort of housing infrastructure still feels similar, the, the street energy, the street fabric feels different than it did when I was a kid. Um, obviously, who occupies those spaces feels a lot different. Um, and that's starting to happen a little bit on the edges of, of, of Strawberry Mansion. Obviously, like, you know, it's it's begun its gentrification cycle in a real way um, on 33rd Street um, near the reservoir. Um, you know, we have beautiful homes on 33rd and, and up to 32nd 30, and 31st Street, old brownstones, old Victorians, et cetera. So that part of the, of the neighborhood, because they put in the infrastructure, they've, they've fixed the, the tennis courts and put the basketball courts in and the, and the driving. I think, I think the, the golf course, um, the driving range was one of the first things that opened up as sort of a, a prelude to sort of the, the COVID openings. So you're getting a lot of these amenities and, and sort of core service infrastructure getting revamped and you're seeing people react to it, right? The Strawberry Mansion Bridge was closed for most of my childhood. <laughs> you couldn't go over that damn bridge but I, you know, came back back home recently, and I was like, "Man, you're six, seven minutes away from the suburbs, straight over that bridge." And what that means in terms of connectivity to jobs, to to other parts of, of the regional infrastructure, changes completely when you turn that stuff on. And it's just always interesting to see when and how it gets turned on. But my grandmother bought her house 1951, 
And she told me she grew up in a neighborhood where, you know, she grew up in, in South Carolina that was hyper segregated. And so when she moved to Philly, it was interesting because she bought the house in Strawberry Mansion and you started seeing sort of white flight start to shift. You know, Strawberry Mansion was a Jewish neighborhood before it was an African-American one. And in the 50s, you started to see that sort of melding of, of cultures that inevitably sort of shut it off in the 70s. But she would tell me about her neighbors who, you know, they're the kosher delis and, you know, they're making knishes and all kinds of stuff. And so it was a really fascinating sort of context to be hearing in the background and sort of echoes. And then when you grow up, you're like, all right, well, this isn't what she described. This is a, this is a little rougher and tougher, right? So my mom, she never, um, she never had me go to school in the neighborhood. So I was always on a bus, first the school bus and eventually SEPTA. And I was riding SEPTA from the time I was seven years old. First to, uh, I guess it would be, you know, we, call it, we call it the Badlands back in the day. So like fourth and Lehigh. I don't know what the hell they call it now. I'm sure it has a, a, a much, much funner name. But uh, That's a you know, hell of a name, by the way. Oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's sort of near Norris Square. So, like, yeah, it, you know, it's like, is it old Kensington? Like, you know, it's all this stuff around what, what that was. But um, it's, and it's funny that the, the elementary school that I went to was a Christian school, which is now a loft, loft complex on 4th from Lehigh. This just bugs me out. But, um, you know, I was taking the, the 54 bus on Lehigh Avenue from 31st where I was over to 4th Street from time I was six, seven years old. Um, my mom worked out in Bluebell and I had to fend for myself. I was a Lasky kid, you know, I'm sort of the, the end of Generation X. So I'm just kind of getting home and I had to cook my, my dinner because she was doing third shift and that's just what it was. It was, you know, it was violent. It was drug written. It was all those sort of epitaphs, but it was also like, I didn't need a play date. I could go outside and hang out with my friends and play basketball and, and do whatever I wanted. And literally had little porch lights. Porch light went off, it's time to get it, get back in the house. And that's just what it was. So it almost felt suburban in that way. And yeah, my, my neighbors were all my aunts. And if I did something bad, it was a collective sort of corporal punishment ecosystem that was there. And if, you know, you weren't doing, you weren't doing what you're supposed to do, anybody could punish you and, and make it happen. So even if it's in this context of a really, really, almost macabre sort of infrastructure of trauma that's going on in a neighborhood. That's all layered over a lot of really interesting and formalized love that I, that I always attribute to North Philly. And, and, you know, uh, I'm sure it's still there, but, you know, I, I tried to sell my wife on it when we were thinking about moving here, but I think very quickly she fell in love with West Philly and that's what it was, but I always had a lot of love for Strawberry Mansion. And I hope, you know, it's, it's going to see its Renaissance, you know, very soon, if not already. Yeah, no, Strawberry Mansion's a, a beautiful neighborhood. You know, before we started recording, you said one word that's that just keeps coming back to me, which is resiliency. You know, what does resiliency mean to you and the work that you do? I'd say this. I mean, I think it's interesting. I, I, I was thinking about this in terms of the last question you asked, and I'll try to tie them together, right? So when I was in, in college, this was the, the late 90s or 2000s, Philly was, was going through this really awesome sort of creative renaissance. You had sort of that next generation of, of neo-soul artists and, you know, the roots really come into their own. And what's interesting is you, you talk about placement, right? Like to get to all this stuff, there was no one, there was no sort of series of neighborhoods where a lot of this was happening in, in real time and, and, and collectively. Everyone met downtown. If you went to the, I think it's Village Whiskey now, that restaurant, there used to be a, there used to be a cafe there called the Crimson Moon. And I'm gonna shout out, you know, Coco Darling. You know, she had a restaurant, you should look this up. 
I feel like it's one of the most important spaces in like Philadelphia history. Black owned cafe in the middle of downtown. And this is the point where essentially half of your sort of neo soul, you had a lot of sort of drum and bass, jungle, that first wave of house that was really sort of um, beyond a sort of like 80s style house. All this was sort of bubbling up. And then you also had the first sort of spoken word wave was happening all in this space. And just, it's the grandmother to Uncle Bobby's. That's the best way I can put it, right? Uncle Bobby's wants to be the Crimson Moon, right? And the reason why I think about this as a resiliency factor is because it was a place where you can congregate all this creative energy, all this creative brilliance in one place. And you started to see iron sharpen iron, right? So you would have somebody's demo come out and they would play at the Crimson Moon and because everybody else in that space was really, really sharp with theirs. You, could, you had to come correct. Um, and I was a little bit younger than everybody else. So everyone was supporting their mid twenties when I, I was in my late teens when this was happening. So you, so you also see this sort of mini generational sort of infrastructure being built into the next class of, of folk. And so you looked at a sort of standard of excellence that was being created, but also creativity and love and fellowship all happening in, in this really tiny, weird cafe. What always struck me was Everybody that was coming through there, and I mean, Joe Scott, Daddy Fat Nasties, you know, I can name the artists that came through that, you know, Victor Dupre, King Brett, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this was all the beginning of their arcs and they all had to leave Philly to do their thing. And that's where I would always get frustrated because I think that's where, if you don't have a resilient enough city to keep the things that make it special, you don't have the infrastructure to keep the things that make it special, you're in a really bad way. And I think about the work that I do from a community development perspective, a lot of my instincts around cafes and corner stores and barbershops and frankly, liquor stores, whatever it is, if there are places where people can congregate, feel comfortable and connect and get the things they need, the basic stuff, the, the things that sort of make neighborhoods stand the test of time, right? And again, nothing, nothing lasts forever, but I always felt like it was fascinating that the, the, the kosher deli may turn into the, the soul food spot, which may turn into something else. You know, you look down in, in the Italian market. If you grew up in Philly 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there's no way you would think you'd have a Vietnamese, Mexican, Central American stronghold with like Netflix level <laughs> food infrastructure in this neighborhood. And I think, you know, or, or it wouldn't have happened without a riot, but the fact that it happened, it happened. And I'm sure, you know, you ask folks who live down there, it was a little more tumultuous than I'm making it seem to be. But I think all those things, both the change that occurs, but also the, the sort of, the, the scaffolding of a neighborhood and, and the thing that allows it to be ever present. People still want to live in those neighborhoods and they still want to go to those places. I think that matters. What I think has always been lacking is people being able to, for lack of a better word, create their own destiny when it comes to the, the winds of change, right? The issue isn't so much that you don't have anchors. The issue is that those anchors are precarious if they're not supported, if they don't have other things around them to keep them, keep them afloat, whether that's capital, whether that's, you know, sort of folks with income mobility, et cetera. So I've always felt like if I can meet people in those places, right? We can support that that infrastructure, that that corner store, that barbershop, that church, that library, and make sure that they stay 
and they can do their, the things they do, right? And I think the other thing that's really neat about resiliency is you're oftentimes having to do something more important and more diversified than what your services are set up to be, right? The bodega owner is way more than just giving you food, especially in times of crisis. You know, I felt this a lot in New York, but I, I'm sure this happened in Philadelphia as well. When, when, there's a, when there's a blackout or a brownout, when there's an event, you know, when you can't get in, when you can't get stuff, those store owners are the ones that have the generators, <laughs> They're the ones who have the, they probably have your keys. They can, you know, let your neighbor know, hey, I'm going out of town, et cetera. Like that stuff matters. And if that becomes, and I'm not going, I'm not even going to crap on Starbucks, but if that becomes Starbucks, I'm like, maybe there's a Starbucks out there where I could tell Barista X, hey, look, I'm going out of town this week. Can you make sure, you know, no one rolls through my spot? Or I'm gonna leave my keys here for the somebody so I'm gonna come pick them up. I think that stuff matters, right? And I actually think part of our, our ethos around investment, I actually think communities of choice have things like that in them. I think people who have choices around where they live more or less try to seek out the crimson moons of the world versus the Starbucks of the world. Right? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And I think that. I mean, you just touched on so many really important points in that. I mean, we lose people if the city doesn't have what it takes to to keep this talent. And I do think that a lot of people will think back to like the public squares where people congregated. But the reality is that in a lot of neighborhoods, bodegas and the small cafes and the, the, all those little little corner spots, that, that is the heart of of that neighborhood that is where people really do congregate and you know something that really has devastated me <laughs> since COVID-19 is that I can't even go to the coffee shop that I usually go to and I didn't realize how much I depended on that conversation to kind of keep me mentally stable and it's just me talking to the person behind the counter and the crazy thing is it it means so much to be able to have that and you don't think about it until it's gone. And, you know, and, and for music, you know, Philadelphia has such a strong history with creativity and innovation in music alone, but you're right. We've lost a lot of really impressive and talented people. I was actually just watching uh, Jill Scott and uh, Erica Badu live the other day. Mm -hmm. I think pretty much, at least the most most black people were watching that if they if they're into that music if they're in, <laughs> if they're in neo soul they were on that live Instagram the other day because everyone I know is sharing it and it's just you know you think about it and they brought up Philly so much in that live stream and it's like but Jill Scott's gone a lot of the 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 talent that people look up to is gone they're leaving and a time a period like what we're in right now with COVID nineteen. You know, we're in we're in this pandemic together, but apart. And right now is the perfect time for the city to just lose a bunch of people or figure out a creative way to keep us here. I mean, I, I would never go back to my I don't think I would go back to my hometown. But when I go back, it makes me sad because I look back at those spots, those little places and a lot of my stories about going back home have to do with the corner store on my block. And my mom used to send me there with a letter 
<laughs> my mom and my grandmother used to send me there with letters to buy them cigarettes. And I used to get so upset about it. But the guy at the store knew my family. So yeah. he would he they would send me a little little note saying, like, please give Lizzie this Benton and Hedges deluxe ultralights for me. And I'd just be <laughs> so upset. <laughs> I'd be so upset. But it's the little things like that, you know, that do make a difference to people. And neighborhoods are so dynamic in that way. And Philadelphia is such just such an amazing city with not just such a strong past, but also a lot of potential for the future. And, you know, it's, it's people that are working in development that can, you know, look beyond what's, what's in front of them and see what that potential is and um, realize it to its, to its fullest. So, you know, that, that makes me want to ask you a little bit more about the work you do with urban development so this, it's funny, there's three things you said that I love. So I, I got to tell a cigarette story because I feel like it, it, it'll, tie, it'll tie it down. So my, my aunt, she was from, from Macon, Georgia. And to this day, probably most brilliant mathematical mind I knew. You, I feel like everyone has that story. She ran numbers. So, so, I, so when I had to go to the corner store, she would have these little slips of paper with the numbers on them that I had to give to the bodega owner. And, and that was like seven, so I didn't know what that was. So I just gave it a, I gave him the numbers and he would give me back a carton of either Virginia Slims or the Red Marlboros. And I remember one day he ran out of the Reds. He said, did you, you want something with the greens? And I said, yeah, whatever. Like I didn't know what menthol was. I didn't care. But I was like, <laughs> I, was I already like, hey, know bro. this was a mistake. Yes. Yeah. That was a big mistake. So she, so she went off on me and I remember being like, I'm seven. How could you ask me to even be picking up cigarettes in the first place? And of course this is, you know, this is like the, the, the mid 80s. So cigarettes are bad. Drugs are bad. And so I'm just like, that stuff's bad. I should be picking this up anyway. But, um, you know, when I got older, I was like, damn, just the the informal trade and the point of you could essentially give a promissory note to a a business owner and that this person would, you know, would take it and, and honor it. Right. So just to connect with what we do as a business. One of the things we talk about sort of a venture model, right? So for me, when I say venture, I, I speak to something like that. That's when you walk in the door every day, you're establishing a credit relationship with that owner, right? Because they know you're gonna come, they know you, they know the certain goods and services that you're gonna provide and they can figure out your patterns. So they know, okay, you get paid for as a 15th, you get paid once, they start figuring out what, what they're doing and they can establish risk profiles on you. None of this is ever written down. None of it's ever sort of calculated. No actuarial tables around like, you know, the risk of this coming through there with, with the promissory note. But um, the point is, when push comes to shove, these businesses are depending on that transaction and that relationship. And so what we started doing is, is thinking through sort of two models. So one was, can we do applied research in place? Some of it market research. So, you know, how big is this, this neighborhood's um, you know, sort of economic value around a certain sort of industry or good or service, and particularly in neighborhoods that were hard to capture that information in. So where there was heavy cash economy occurring or lots of remittances, for instance, so money was going right back out to, to people's homelands, et cetera. But looking at those sort of informal market transactions, right? So alternative credit's a good example of that. Every corner store on the planet has a list of people they let in that door who can buy whatever they want because they know they're going to they're gonna be good in a week. Right. So part of what we started asking ourselves, what would that look like at scale? In New York, there's 15,000 bodegas. 
right? And Philly is probably a good like, you know, 3,000 or something like that, right? If you were able to get them to report that credit transaction to any of the bureaus, one person doing it doesn't make any sense, but you do 3,000 of them, all of a sudden you have a really scalable data set that can allow the credit bureaus to make a, a positive progressive transaction point. And so we started thinking about what are the other big, large data sets that are scalable, but also credible, right? But at the neighborhood level, but also with government. This is actually another opportunity point. We know our, our credit system right now, when I say that more on the personal uh, finance side of things, it's pretty regressive. And so if you can figure out ways to find sort of open data, and that's the, that's the beauty of where we are right now, even more so than five years ago, big data sets are out there and both government and private sector can take advantage of that stuff for good if they want to. And so what we see ourselves now is sort of a, an action lab to start making some things happen in place, right? And so part of the reason why we're doing that now is, is a lot, frankly, and I love telling these stories because they're the stories of failing up, right? I love, I love these new startup turns, but I'm like, it took me 12 years to figure out where I am right now. And that's probably like four or five pivots or whatever sort of newfangled language you want to talk about around entrepreneurship. But the point is, looking back, it was like, okay, I tried this thing, it didn't quite work, or this worked halfway, and here are the reasons why it didn't work. So the next time I do this, or next time I try to scale this, I'm going to try to solve this problem. So this is like really interesting natural selection that's happening over time around, around our approach. And what I came to, at least now, what we're trying out, is if we can get deep data in a place, so focus at a neighborhood level, focus maybe in a regional sort of city level and say, look, you know, Southwest Philly looks like this. It has these dynamics going on. And if we can get a mixture of market data, so business point information that's coming in from the tills, we can get market information about the neighborhood that's both public, secondary and primary. If we can mix that up with frankly, really great qualitative and ethnographic stuff, talk to people really be able to have really trusted conversations because we're tied to those community anchors that I mentioned before. So the bodega doesn't go away. In Southwest, it's the African grocery store, right? Different kind of context point, but same thing. But, you know, you gotta be able to build that trust relationship up and say, how can we then take all this information and then utilize it for something real, right? So the real estate stuff that we're into now is a real, a real byproduct of, of trying and failing and trying and failing and trying and failing because now it's like, okay, how do we become a, a real place-based anchor institution? Well, I tried it working with other developers and it was like, mm. <laughs> we had some mixed results there for, for many reasons. I'm not um, surprised. Like, yeah, <laughs> like I've heard it a, all. A, a better, we could be a smarter, more, more resilient version of what's already out there because we had some of the bona fides of, of working with small business owners and we could provide our tenants with that, that resource. But we also had this idea of if we could understand the dynamics of a neighborhood and the various data points that come from it with this sort of place at the center of it, we could show what this sort of future of, of investment and analytics and placemaking could all look like and, and scale. So. Our first base wing is in Brooklyn. It's our Flatbush K Market project, but we have some fun things for Philly in store. I'm very hopeful about Southwest. We did a lot of work in the last year and a half um, with a lot of groups out there. Learn about what's going on, get bad and different. I, I, I learned very quickly, 2% of all philanthropic dollars over the last like 30, 40 years have gone to Southwest Philly in the region. It's just categorically been disinvested in. And what you see happening in that, in that community 
is by and large spit and polish for the folks that have lived there and figure out how they grind. Um, and because the neighborhood is so diverse, and this is the really fascinating part about Southwest, you have this merchants class. You've always had these issues in neighborhoods in, of color. You have this merchant class not of the neighborhood, right? And I'm never gonna knock the immigrant story. But what's fascinating about the Southwest story is you have a West African immigrant class who's been there probably for about a generation now, who, you know, at a, at a cursory level looks like the folks who live in the neighborhood. But we know, you know, the, the, the African diaspora is not a monolith and it really fills out in real time about the sort of what is the interesting opportunity point around, around what it means to be Pan-African in 2020, right? And how does that relate to a COVID moment where we can't touch each other, right? Where there's like the, the time in which we need to be touching each other the most and understanding how we can be supporting each other at the time when we can't do it. You mentioned a thing around trauma. A lot of our work right now on the entrepreneurial level is moving to this space where how do we support entrepreneurs who are constantly dealing with trauma, right, in their personal lives? How do yeah. we support the whole entrepreneur? Because ultimately, just creating capital and business product, et cetera, it ain't going to work right now. No, it's it very difficult. Work. It's difficult work. And I mean, I work in the same exact area. I work with underserved entrepreneurs. And it's not easy. And I think that people people who are more privileged have a very, very hard time understanding what the reality is. And I mean, like even just the concept of informal credit, that's not something that, that a lot of people know about who didn't grow up with that in their neighborhood. And it's really difficult to, to think about people having to do, I mean, the biggest, one of the biggest challenges I've had with working with underrepresented founders is the availability to launch a new business is different because you don't have a family to lean on. And in some cases, you, you, you really have nowhere that you can get the financing you need even before COVID-19 crisis happened. We were already starting from the bottom, if not below the bottom. And now it's just, it, it's just all hell breaking loose. No one really knows what to do, how to support entrepreneurs as a whole, but especially how do you support underserved entrepreneurs, underrepresented entrepreneurs? It's, it's not easy. No, I, I always tell folks in the space, man, it, whatever, whatever deity you, you support or, or none, it's, it's divine work, you know, like, because it's more than just entrepreneurship. Like you have to get to know people. Our, our new moniker was not on the website yet, but it's something we've been, we've been saying sort of as a mantra is like trust transforms. And that's really been sort of how we think about the world right now is if you can't trust me and I don't care if it's a, if, you, if you're a banker, if you are, <laughs> you know, you're a, you're a technical system provider, you're just a neighbor, like trust is going to make, make things move or not. And, and I think what's interesting with this is we're at a point with COVID where we're dealing with this PTSD. We don't even know we have yet. And that's everybody, but, it, but particularly for it, for the, the business owners who, you know, their lifeblood is tied into this, their identity is tied into this. So a lot of what I find myself doing, it sounds like you do the same thing, is having to hold people's pain in the middle of trying to get them through a journey that's very, frankly, both technical and tactical, but also, you know, and I have these questions a lot, and, and, and I'm going to start talking about this more. We're using the master's tools to try to re, re and deconstruct you know, a system of oppression 
which just doesn't make any sense. It never did, right? And so how, how can I talk about both sides of my mouth? How can I talk about wealth generation and wealth building and all these things that are very, very dominant culture? And at the same time, try to deconstruct that stuff and maybe even break it down out of the other side of my mouth. And I think that's, that's the sort of arc that I'm on right now where I think there are some existing tools that can be utilized in the financial spaces and some of the, some of the things we're talking about around retail infrastructure and supporting small business at the same time, really getting at some of these sort of the stolen value that large corporations have taken from the people to build their, their empires. And whether that's GPS or internet on through to like our roads and our, and our, our infrastructure. And so when I think about what's going to make us try to bring it back to your original question about resiliency, what's going to make Philly resilient, what's going to make these neighborhoods resilient is going to be the ability for community members, for entrepreneurs in these communities to be able to, to invest and get return on that public layer of infrastructure, to be able to take some of these alternative methods of investment and credit, et cetera, and have it legitimized. And we're going to build that new infrastructure up to allow them to really be able to grow in place if they so choose. I mean, the other question is like, look, if you can double your money on your house that you bought and you're a 65 year old teacher who's worked her entire life, do you get to go to Florida and, and, and make return on your, on, your, on your house? Who am I to say that shouldn't be the case? So I think what's fascinating about right now is there's no, there's no right answer to any of this stuff. It's just that I think the, the opportunity to, to create your own path is what I'm really excited about. And so we have some tools we can build to make that happen. So let's talk about these tools. What, what are the tools that you think are going to help people get through this? I mean, you know, what are some things in particular that you think can really help people? Okay. On the small business side of things, I mean, look, I do think there needs to be a re-emphasis on, on, on capital products that makes sense for folks. Because right now, if I wanted to get money, I can go on the street and get something that's going to be predatory. I can go get a credit card that's going to be predatory. You know, I can get hard money that's going to be predatory. These, these products have existed through from ad infinitum to now. <laughs> it's not like they're new. They're just more pressing because there's a problem going on with liquidity in, in, in the community. So really it's, you know, whether it's philanthropy or it's government or it's the regular investor, them beginning to look at what return is and take a real true cost accounting of what they're looking at. I think the question is fundamentally, you know, there is, there is a, a, a relationship between the amount of return you get and the amount of harm you do. I, there's no question in my mind, those things are linked. And I think there is absolutely room for the impact investment that can do well and do good and all the stuff you hear. But there's, a, there's probably a point of no return that, that that next, like, you know, the opportunity cost for that next percentage point tips you into a space where you're harming people. And if that's the way our corporate structures are built, that's the way in which investors think about return, we're going to always have a problem. So until there's products out there that are doing the job to really measure the whole, the whole of investment, those are the tools that have to find their way out into the, into the space and find their way out in scale. So that's some of the things that we're working on. We're working on a really cool integrated capital approach. We're part of an 11-city cohort. Um, so we're representing Philly and Brooklyn, actually, with, with our team. But there's folks in Atlanta and Seattle and, 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 and Indianapolis, uh, Chattanooga, a whole bunch of other places that are all working with this group out of Boston that created this really funky model around investing in justice. And that's what we've been talking about a lot. Like, can you create a, a risk-adjusted financial product with justice as the core, justice as a screen? 
And literally my question to the group today was, how do you risk it just for justice? Like beyond social impact, how do you ch- do something that's gonna change the system and make it more just and invest in it, right? And what do you need to get back for that? And so what's cool about the tools is that there's people who have already sort of worked through some of the initial modeling around what that looks like. You know, so the Boston Impact Initiative is the group that we're, that we're working off of. They have a charitable loan fund that has a completely black and brown LGBTQ portfolio, really fascinating set of companies they've invested They've done grant making, they've done investing, and they've done lending, and really blending the three together. So not just giving somebody a loan or just a grant, but it's the opportunity to say, here's this business. It's probably going to need everything. It's going to need working capital. It's going to be unsecured. It's going to need something that maybe you can secure against for bigger growth purposes. And then it may need some equity to really be able to do what it needs to do. And those tools just aren't out there. And I think you, you mentioned the friends and family sort of conundrum. And I think thinking about the friends and family sort of solution point. And there's people already, you don't get me wrong, there's people already working on this in Philly. And I think part of the moment is to amplify what people are doing and make the connective tissue work. But I think having a financial product that's purposely thinking about that true cost accounting with justice as part of the lens is going to be really, really fascinating for us kind of moving forward. The other thing I'll say, and I'll give a shout out, I'm on a board um, of a group called the Merchants Fund, really great organization here in Philly. Uh, before I started Urbana, I did some technical assistance work with them years ago. But they're, you know, over 150-year-old organization. It started out essentially as a mutual aid society. So what's interesting right now is you're seeing all kinds of remixes on the mutual aid society concept, right? And I think you're going to see a lot more post-COVID, given that what we've seen where no one, no one had pandemic as a writer for their insurance claims. So what's going to happen the next time? Either A, I'm going to pay a lot more to get basic insurance from the regular marketplace, or we're going to help each other, right? And we're going to have ways in which to do that that we'll probably invest in together to make that happen. I think you're starting to see people coalescing in that space. So a lot of folks who think about co-ops think about mutual aid. And so I think those tools are starting to bubble up in lots of different ways that are really fascinating. You know, the last thing I'll say tool-wise, and this is definitely going back to the real estate side of it, is can we as everyday people begin to play in the spaces that only accredited investors have been playing in, right? And whether that's something as simple as, as a municipal bond. So I want to invest in the microgrid that's going to service the next big development here in Philadelphia. Can I take, can I play a role in that? And can I get the return on that? To being able to do more traditional sort of bonds and public and private placements to invest in sort of businesses and the community, you know, wealth products that, that frankly rich people can do, but we can't. So can we create those those layers um, there? And that's just on the capital side. I think there's a whole other set of things that happen beyond that. But, you know, that's what we're working on right now. There are a lot of organizations out here trying to tackle these issues. However, it goes back to a few of the things that you mentioned where your focus shifts when it's about money. And investors are looking for companies that are going to make them money and they're not looking for the, the social impact piece. There are some investors that focus on social impact, but it's really difficult for people to get access to capital to do these things. And it's also very difficult to become an accredited investor. And it takes some time and research to get there. And I, I know that for me personally, I mean, I try to read as much stuff as possible, but I didn't come up with financial literacy being something that my parents taught me about, not because my parents are uneducated. Both my parents went back to school in their 30s. 
But even with that, they weren't able to instill that in me. And I just don't think that one darn enough women or people of color that are working on the investment side across the board, whether it's real estate investment or investing in entrepreneurship or in stocks and and cryptocurrencies and all these things, we really got to go out of our comfort zone and find that. And there are a lot of people that that figure these things out and they pull themselves out of the hole that <laughs> that they came from. But it's it's there's also a lot of people who have no idea of what they can do to make their money work for them. And people, you know, people always wonder why people with money make more money. A lot of people don't understand how money is actually made. This goes back to sort of our idea around um, the community anchor institution, because we often find simply it's who co-signs an idea or who can I see take that first early adopter step that's going to make a difference. I mean, because look, I, I know I can go to PIDC, for instance, and learn about the, through the basics of business or personal finance. I can go to any micro lender and, and sort of get those lessons. It's never about a lack of information. It's about who's giving it. Who's the, who is the, the sort of... Um, the progenitor of the, of the information in the first place. And I feel like part of what we always wanted to do was arm those key community anchor, whether your neighborhood mayor or again, you're the, the Bogadero or whoever, if they're the ones talking about this, even at the, at the highest level, it's going to gain some resonance in the community because they have more touch points. I think on the personal finance side, for sure, I mean, we talked about this, there's just certain things you didn't learn when you were a kid. And it's much harder to pick that stuff up. Like, I don't, I don't even know if, if rich people sat their, their, their kids down and said, this is how you're going to do this thing. You just watch them move, right? Like, you learn so much about just watching people move through the world. And there are, there are implicit movements that just happened, right? Like, you're like, wait, we bought this second home. And it could be a vacation home, but it's also an asset you, just, you put your money into, right? As long as you didn't over leverage yourself and go into a bad market, that was a good thing. You know, like the idea of life insurance and the difference between the whole and term or things that someone probably talked about in earshot of you, right? So when someone brought it up in your own context, you at least had a, a certain level of understanding about what that was, and what the differences were. So those things, you know, you sort of get through osmosis to some extent, but there has to be an intentionality to your exact point, let alone if we're talking about changing the system up a little bit. If you're talking about more community opportunities and community capital, we're going to aggregate community dollars. One of the things that I'm hoping to bring to Philly is some real attention on the legal side about what it looks like to structure some of these community um, financial products. So part of the next couple of years is, is to really build up a, an infrastructure to say, hey, look, you want a CLT? Cool. Here are the pros and cons of a CLT. You want to do a community investment fund? Well, this is what a charitable loan fund model looks like. This is what a real estate fund model looks like within that context. So you can get a neighborhood note together like they did in 68, right? And if you want to do a private sort of investment group, that's simple. That's the thing about a lot of stuff too. We have the apparatuses for this stuff. It's in our churches, it's in our schools, it's in our libraries, it's in our in our bodegas. We already we already organized. We just don't organize with purpose, right? So I mean, if I can whisper in the ear of of all the progenitors of those spaces and say, hey, let's talk about this. Here's some tools. That's who's going to be able to get them in a room and speak real truth to power to them, and they'll own it. Yeah, it goes back. I mean, it definitely goes back to what you said. Your your new mantra is the trust transforms, right? It, it it takes trust to move to make things move, and 
if you can get those those insiders to connect with you and, and give you that information, it can make all the difference. And so, you know, what is next? What is the next big thing for for people to to uplift themselves, to be empowered, to get from where they were to where they're going to be? And it's hard to find those answers right now. It's It's hard to really know, but I do think that there are a lot of really creative, talented people here in this city that are already coming up with really interesting ways to get through this and and generate revenue through things that people haven't ever done before. I mean, one of my favorite things I've seen restaurants do is sell these food kits. I mean, who knew? There's all this Blue Apron and all these things that have existed for a while now, and people have been ordering meal kits to their houses, but now you can order them from your favorite restaurants. I would love to be able to do that with the Jamaican restaurant on, <laughs> on Gerard that I go to. If, okay. if, if I could get a meal kit from a neighborhood spot, that would be wonderful. That would be wonderful because I don't always want all these super fancy, expensive meal kits, but I do want to cook my own food right now. And I would love to be able to support businesses that are from neighborhoods like the one that I grew up in and just kind of moving to, to the next phase, uh, beyond COVID-19. I don't know if we'll ever get beyond COVID-19. It could be here for a while, but maybe beyond where we are in this pandemic. What do you think is next with the work that you're doing? I'm, I think I'll go back to what something I mentioned before, but with a little bit of a twist, I'm, I'm really interested in two big things. One is the appropriate formalization of the informal economy. And I say that very particularly because I think there's things that absolutely should stay informal for two different reasons. One, sometimes hustlers need to stay, stay hustle, period. And that's okay. The other side is I think there's a certain amount of innovation that has to be informalized. The second you formalize it, you lose the whole spark. You lose that magic. It's really to your, to your earlier point. It's identifying the magic and finding places for it to grow, but it needs to be incubated in, in, in that informal space. But all that said, I think a lot of our opportunities are gonna lie in the struggles that we're having now and the solution points that are happening now in that informal space. So being able to track sort of how people are solving problems, so you're putting on the meal kit, like I guarantee you someone's turned the, turned the plate. Like, you know, like there's literally a cat on my block who's trying to sell vegan, vegan plates. Um, to me right now, you know, because he's trying to make ends meet. He, he worked at a restaurant and or lost his, his job and trying to figure out what's going on. That idea you had, someone's going, someone's going to do it. They I haven't hope done it so. Already. I it's hope some so. Fashion, but they're probably already doing it informally. They just have to sort of put, put together the infrastructure to do it formally. You know, I, I laugh, I laugh a lot at the sort of gig economy and the shared economy stuff because I'm just like, all right. So if you grew up in Philly, do you know what a hack is, or you've heard of what a hack is? And I'm like, man, look. There was a hack network in my neighborhood in 1985. If we had the mobile technology that was built, you know, by the public, by the way, to create the infrastructure for Uber, et cetera, these cats would already be on it because they're logistical experts. They know how to move through this city in ways quickly and efficiently in ways that would never would have happened now, right? But there was no infrastructure for, to invest in that sort of that sort of group back then. You know, so I oftentimes see things that happen in, in community being the, the sort of first adopter version of something that someone commercializes and runs with. 
And I think this is the moment where like we could be paying way more attention to that kind of modality in, in our crisis moment to figure out what the next commercialization options are. I think the second big thing is going to be, and I'm, I'm super hopeful as I was out, me and my wife were in, in, in South Africa and Tanzania right before the um, crisis really hit and just talking to a lot of the entrepreneurs on the continent. And I have, I mean, I feel, I feel like I, I was embracing my, my Marcus Garvey. I was embracing my, you know, my Kwame Torre. Like, I feel like there was a whole Pan-African conversation that needs to happen. And I feel Philly could be an interesting place for that to go down. When you talk about talent acquisition and retention, I think, you know, I've, taught, I've told pretty powerful people in this city this, and I'll keep saying it. I'm going to say it as much as I can and jump blue in the face. I think what's going to make Philly interesting is when it decides that it wants to embrace its chocolate seediness in all the beautiful ways that that manifests. And a big part of that's going to be connecting to folks, you know, whether that's in sort of the Afro-Latin diaspora, whether that's directly to, to the continent, or more to the point, it's doubling down with the African-American community and saying, you're part of a diaspora, you're part of something greater. And I think when we're able to build that infrastructure and those tools to connect those dots, and I mean like infrastructure, like aggregation and distribution infrastructure, you're already seeing people do it informally in neighborhoods throughout the city, right? Taking that on and saying, you know, we can solve some of these problems by investing in, that, in those groups. Um, and whether that's sort of, logistics and infrastructure work and the software and tech that's going to work behind that. Or, I mean, what's fascinating right now is maybe for the first time, it says I can remember, the U.S. isn't the sole soft power in the world. If you go elsewhere in the world, yes, we still set some trends and yes, our, our media is still out there, but communities across the world are, are setting their own their expectations and their own swag. And the diasporas are far enough and deep enough in place where your instinct isn't, okay, I gotta go to America to learn and to be able to validate myself anymore. You can go do your thing, learn here and go, go to hell home. So you're pointing around like, it's, it's the analog to the $200 investment, right? Who knew you could just go back home after you know your undergrad and go win in Ghana, go win you know, in Bahia, right? Or even better, come to the States, utilize your networks, and win in both places, right? And I think what I hope for Philadelphia and certainly what I hope for, for a lot of what we're talking about around next is we're looking at how this sort of dual sort of pass around, like we see what happens when we lean too hard in globalization around supply chain. So we got to figure out how to invest in supply chain that's local. But I do also think there's a really fascinating sort of global transaction that's going to happen on the soft side. And I think there's a collision course where you're thinking about like local supply chain, local infrastructure, talk about food, local, local food security, all those really great things are gonna have its day. And I think at the same time, you're gonna see this, this really interesting kind of cross connection of cultures once we get back up and running. And I think if Philly is a, uh, an interesting job, it can say to the world, hey, we are a place where we can be a hub for black and brown folks to come and do their thing. And particularly, again, like, again I'm, I'm leaning in the Southwest right now because I'm like, there's already, there's already a kernel there. You can say the same thing about brown folks in South Philly. You can say the same thing about South, Southeast Asian folks in, in, in South Philly as well. We can be a really interesting global city if we choose to kind of lean into that. And I think the two things are going to collide in a really interesting way for me. So I'm, I'm super excited to sort of tinker with some of our ideas on how to kind of connect to that. Yeah, I think, I mean, I agree with a lot of that. And, you know, we talked a lot about both formal and informal interactions 
throughout our conversation here. And, you know, I got to give a shout out to the guy who lived across the street from me back home who sold barbecue chicken <laughs> right off his grill at his front fence uh, in my neighborhood. And there are a lot of, I hear stories about really, really great businesses that, that come out of people's front yards. I mean, we hear a lot of stories that come out of people's garages, but a lot of people don't hear those stories about underrepresented entrepreneurs. And there are a lot. It's not just the Steve Jobs coming out of the garage. There are people who are in underserved communities that are really doing innovative, creative things to get by. I agree. I think it's going to take a mix of both formal and informal things to get us through this. And if people just continue to innovate on their hustle like they always have, the future will be bright. I, I just look forward to seeing what comes out of that. And, uh, you know, it is what it is. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk with me. This is great. This is super fun. Appreciate y'all. <laughs> and the last thing I'm going to ask is for you to just drop <laughs> drop some notes on how, how can somebody get in touch with you if they want to partner or learn more about what you're doing. Absolutely. So we'll start with the simplest form for us. You go to our website, it's urbane-dev. So U-R-B-A-N-E-D-E-V.com. If you go to the, I think there's a contact page on there. There's a, a newsletter you can, you can link on to to make sure you keep in touch with what we're doing at the firm. There's some contact information in general there. I think you can connect to my LinkedIn or, or, or email, et cetera, for that purpose. We're on most of social. So if you search for Urbane Development, we're on Instagram. There's a LinkedIn page for Urbane, Twitter page for Urbane. Oh, and we have, and if you, if, if you ever make it to Brooklyn, we do have a Caribbean market that we run up there. So we didn't talk about that, but flatbushkatonmarket.com, you know, Katon is C-A-T-O-N. The other two things you can probably spell on your own, you know, historical Caribbean marketplace, 30 plus vendors. So if you're in the Caribbean stuff, check them out too. They're, they're a really group, great group of folks. Thanks for listening. And a very special thanks to James for taking the time to catch up with us. If you're interested in learning more about urban development, check out their website, urbane-dev.com. If you have any thoughts on the conversation, be sure to send us a message on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or send an email to info at parallaxcollab.com. Last but not least, don't forget to leave us a rating in Apple Podcast. Until next time.